Well, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel once again. This is uh, our continuing study of how to read and understand the Bible, and we're in uh, part seven uh, tonight. And let me mention just a couple of quick, uh, just preliminary remarks and um, announcements. Uh, so this week on Tuesday, I had a theological Q&A on the Christian Underground News Network. And if you uh, have not listened to that yet, I encourage you to go in and uh, check that out. It's a great, uh, just a great discussion, several fun questions and important questions that you may not have thought about, like who was Melchizedek and uh, where is heaven and those kinds of things. Uh, so uh, that's uh, available at the uh, Not By Works podcast. Also, the video from Sunday morning when David and I did an interview together up here uh, is available there. For the Sunday evening Q&A, which was about an hour and a half, we didn't put up the video, but we do have that as a podcast, so that's available uh, also at the Not By Works website or wherever you listen to our podcast. And then finally, don't forget to download the uh, Not By Works mobile app, and uh, that is uh, you can check that out at our website. There's a floating banner that you just click on, and it explains how to download it. But it's a free app, and it's a great resource to keep up with every time we post a new devotional or a new podcast or any new video, you'll be uh, have access to it right there in one uh, central uh, location. So uh, this is uh, part seven. I gave you a handout, just a little comic relief. Um, I won't take the time to look at those, but we've talked a lot about figures of speech, in particular similes and metaphors. And, uh, and so much of, of interpreting Scripture comes down to being able to to figure out the figurative, as they say, to understand the distinction between a, a figure of speech and, and uh, you know, what, the, what a literal statement is being made. So, uh, so anyway, I thought you'd have some fun with that. And uh, by the way, it says there that this was an annual thing and these are last year's entries, but I've been using that for about 20 years. So it wasn't last year, but it was last year when I first handed that out in a class. So I know some of those are just hilarious. <laughs> they really are. So, by the way, I feel bad that those of you live streaming, <laughs> those of you that are live streaming and, and, or watching the video, you feel left out. So if you'd like a copy of these uh, 30 or 40 uh, famous uh, similes and metaphors that students have come up with, email me and I'll be glad to email, you, email it to you. <laughs> I, I don't feel bad because I was doing the same thing this afternoon when I was reading it, so it's pretty funny. All right, so uh, obviously we always want to remember that the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. And for our case study tonight, we want to open the Word of God and take a look at a, a passage of Scripture, once again, that is often misinterpreted. And this one is Psalm 118, verse 24. Now, if this... It doesn't have bumper sticker or poster or refrigerator magnet written all over it. I don't know what does. Uh, but how many of you have heard this uh, verse? This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 24. Uh, in the context of, you know, today is the day the Lord made. And Every day is precious to God, and remember that today is, is God's day. It belongs to God and so forth. But here's a perfect example of failing to identify the grammatical aspects of God's Word. Remember, the foundational methodology that we are suggesting is the only correct way to handle Scripture is called the literal, grammatical, historical and we sort of tend to understand literal and historical, but it's that middle one, grammatical, that often escapes our attention. And so right off the bat here, you see this verse begins with a pronoun, right? This. Yet instinctively, we read this verse as if it says, Today is the day the Lord is. It doesn't say today, though, does it? This. Well, every pronoun has to have an antecedent. So what's the antecedent of this? Well, you're going to have to look at the context uh, to find out. So let me give you just kind of a quick uh, overview of Psalm 118 and kind of tell you what this verse is really saying, um, and then we'll dive into the material for tonight. 
Psalm 118 is the last in a series from Psalm 113 to 118 of what we call Hallel Psalms. You've heard of Hallelujah, right? praise God is what that means in Hebrew. So the Hallel are praise Psalms. And uh, Psalm 136 also is a, a Hallel. It's the, called the Great Hallel. But Psalms 113 to 118, so those six, plus what we know as Psalm 136, comprised a collection of songs that the Jews would sing on special occasions, particularly at their festivals, uh, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Uh, and they would also sing these on other special days uh, uh, from time to time. But Hallel in Hebrew is the imperative singular command to praise. So if you say Hallel, it's you praise is what it's saying. Um, so at Passover, for example, historically it was customary for Jews to sing Psalms 113 and 114 before the meal, and then 115 to 118 after the meal. And they would do so to celebrate the Exodus, God's deliverance out of, out of uh, Egypt. Uh, in uh, Psalm 118, if we go back and look at the whole context, of course it's anonymous, but it describes a, a festal procession to the temple to praise and sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, the subject is God's uh, hesed or loyal, uh, faithful, uh, unconditional love for His people. Um, we, we, like so many Psalms, we don't know the specifics that were in the mind of this human author when he wrote this Psalm under the inspiration of the Spirit. But it seems to be a situation where God is restoring Israel after some period of uh, trouble or dishonor. So I'm going to look it up here real quick. Or actually, we can put it on the screen. Uh, so if you look at uh, the screen here, I'll call up Psalm 118. And let's see if we can make it a little bit bigger. Now that's as big as it'll go. So notice it says, and I'll put this on the screen for those uh, watching at uh, home, if I can get my mouse here. So it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Notice it says, Let Israel now say. So this is clearly a national psalm. Uh, let the house of Aaron, that's just sort of synonymous parallelism there, repeating the same thing that we see there in verse 2. And then in verse 3, let those who fear the Lord, just another way of describing the Jews. Uh, and then he says, I, now this is obviously the writer speaking for himself, but he's clearly doing so for the nation of Israel. And he says, I called on the Lord in distress. Now, we don't know what the distress was, but somehow Israel was facing a difficult time. And so the Lord answered me and set me uh, in a broad place. So what we see is that, uh, you know, whatever this issue was, God was going to deliver them from it. And then it's only by comparing Scripture with Scripture that we begin to understand that the ultimate deliverance that these people are speaking about is when the kingdom comes, when Israel is no longer in bondage to anyone, when they're able to be you know, fully inhabiting the land as promised to them. Obviously, this is written a thousand years before Christ. They had had the Abrahamic promise for a thousand years before that already, in 2000 B.C., uh, so, a couple of other interesting things about uh, this verse, and then, uh, and then we'll move on. Um, let's see here. If you go to, uh, if we go over here to uh, Matthew chapter 26, just to kind of show you that even in the first century, this Hallel Psalm was still kind of very much a part of the tradition uh, of, of the Jews when they would... Uh, uh, have festivals and so forth. We read in Matthew 26 in the context of the upper room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that the, the, uh, uh, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. It's very likely that the hymn they sung was one of these Hallel hymns uh, to mark the moment of Passover just like they had you know, for centuries. Uh, another uh, cross-reference, if we uh, look down here at... Uh, in Psalm 118, toward the end of the psalm here, let me get to it, where it says this in verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, so let me put that 
uh, on the screen here. Let's see here. Well, well, I can't seem to get it to go on the screen. Sorry about that. But anyway, you can look it up in your Bibles. But that verse, does that sound familiar? Where, where the psalmist here writes, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Anybody recognize that from any place else in the Bible? Where? Now, did you know that off the top of your head? Yeah. So flip over there to... Matthew 21, actually I've got it on the screen here, 42 to 43. So this is, just to put this in context, this is when Jesus is confronting the uh, scribes and Pharisees in the temple. He's uh, overturned the tables of the money changers. He's cursed the fig tree. It's uh, leading up to the uh, Thursday of Passion Week when he celebrates the Lord's Supper, which we just referenced. Um, but in Matthew 23, he issues a series of scathing rebukes for the national leaders of Israel. And he climaxes it here by quoting Psalm 118. And he says to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And that's exactly what happen part of it it hasn't yet been given to the believing nation of Israel but it will be someday and it was taken from these leaders they did not get to experience the ultimate blessings that the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 118 and uh, instead they you know because they rejected the Messiah they died in unbelief and then of course we know the second time around they will believe the gospel uh, and so then in the very next uh, section of Matthew, so 21 and 22, you know, he's still uh, talking about Israel's unbelief and the scribes and the Pharisees as the, the vipers and uh, whitewashed tombs and hypocrites and so forth. Then he says at the end of chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And uh, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until uh, you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So does that sound familiar? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's from this same Messianic psalm, Psalm 118. So if you go back to verse 22 where we left off, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes, which is what Jesus quoted in chapter 21. Then the famous verse that we're looking at, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord, that is deliver. Deliver us from whatever this distress is, uh, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus identifies himself as that one. And this is the same uh, theme that we see in the Old and New Testament alike about Israel's ultimate deliverance, that someday in belief, having believed God, not rejected him in unbelief, but believed in him, they will call on the name of the Lord and they will be delivered into the kingdom. And so Jesus here is saying, look, you know, again, sort of uh, uh, taking some paraphrastic liberties here, he's saying, you know, this time you cried, crucify him, crucify him. But next time you'll cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when you do, then you'll be delivered into the kingdom. And, uh, you know, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, which of course comes right after Matthew 23, uh, makes that point abundantly clear when he says 
in chapter 24 of Matthew, verse 31, that when he comes, he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds of heaven uh, to the other. But they can only be gathered into the land in belief. Um, Paul makes this point clear in Romans 10. Remember what he says in Romans 10? Boy, I, I, my heart's desire is for all of Israel to be delivered into the kingdom. 10 and 11, by the way. It goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. But he said, they, they haven't believed the gospel. Remember, he quotes Isaiah. Who has believed our report? They don't get to be delivered into the kingdom because they haven't believed. And then he says, you know, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed first? So they have to believe in the Lord before they can call on the Lord. Uh, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that's the order. And so in Romans 10, Paul is explicitly teaching what we read about in passages like Psalm 118 and Matthew 21 to 24, that Israel uh, is, is someday going to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but only after they first believe. So all that to say, if we go back to our focal verse, this is the day, he's talking about the day of the Lord's return. This is a second coming passage. This, which day? The one when Israel cries, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and the Lord saves Israel and brings them into prosperity. Um, so, does that make sense? So, now, that, like we've often said so many times when we misinterpret a scripture, it's not that the, the principle that we are suggesting is wrong, because is it true that today is God's day? Certainly, every day is God's day. Is it true that you know, every day belongs to God? Of course. Is that what this verse is saying? Absolutely not. And when we take this verse out of context, one verse in the midst of a, a great psalm that's, that Jesus quotes twice about His return, and we make it all about today, we're missing an incredible truth that God has for His people, for us, for the readers of Scripture, which is that someday Christ is going to come back and we will rejoice and be glad in that day, right? Make sense? Any questions or comments about that? You look like you're about to say something very profound. <laughs> yes. Well, that's what Jesus says. So the question is, what did they think they were talking about when they were singing, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? Well, Jesus kind of asked the same thing. Have you never read? Didn't you know? I mean, how many times have, do we see Jesus rebuking them uh, for not knowing what the Scriptures clearly foretold? And so, um, again, they didn't, uh, they didn't have just that one verse where it talks about the stone being rejected they had the whole of the teaching of the law and the prophets and it has a whole lot to say about this future messiah who would come so um, it's one thing to understand the meaning it's another thing to accept it and welcome and embrace it and the jews did not do that but it's not because uh, they were not able to you know god didn't blind their hearts to it uh, because they, it was right there in plain sight. All right, anything else? All right, well, let's, uh, let's review. Uh, obviously, this exercise that we do at the beginning of each uh, Wednesday night is to illustrate the point that the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. Uh, we're using as our paradigm uh, the five steps in the Bible study process. And I came up with a new chart or a modified uh, uh, a chart that I've used for a long time that I'll show you in just a moment that I really think is helpful in restating these same five principles here. So, but just to review, steps one through three are the development phase where we're trying to understand the meaning. So we start with the Bible. We understand that verse and its literal, grammatical, historical context. Then we expand the focus and we compare Scripture with Scripture at step two. By the time you get to step three, you understand the meaning and you're, you're uh, sort of articulating it in a succinct, this is what the Bible says, right? 
But then in steps four and five, you're taking what you've concluded through proper Bible study and you're applying it in life. And the first, or step four, is to evaluate the world's truth claims through the conclusions that you came up with in steps one through three. And then, of course, step five is to apply it to life. So this is just another way uh, to, to diagram this out. The foundation here is the literal, grammatical, historical method. You've got to start with the right method because as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you don't start with the right proper approach to studying Scripture, you're not going to cut straight. You're going to be off base from the beginning. Uh, if you remember, I think I've got that chart here. Let's see. Yeah, so if you remember this chart, you know, it starts with step one, using the proper method, step two, cross-referencing. If you start off from the beginning with a terrible method, your attempt to go from what the Bible says to the correct meaning is going to be off base already. And so then your cross-referencing is going to be off base and all of that. So uh, the, the foundation here is the key, and I'm just restating that that's the literal, grammatical, historical uh, context. And so then you move into the, you know, the steps, if you will. What does the Bible say? What else does the Bible say? Comparing Scripture with Scripture. And then what can we conclude? And these are the analysis, synthesis, and meaning uh, steps in the process. So those are big, fancy, uh, academic-type words. But analysis, we're just observing the text. So, for example, when we saw in Psalm 118, verse 24, that it uses the pronoun this, we should go ding, 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 that's a pronoun. What day? What day is he referring to? <laughs> in the context, the day of deliverance. Uh, so... We're just analyzing the text, looking at the subject and the noun and the verb and the context. And then at the second level, it's synthesis, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So what else does the Bible say? And we did some of that too when we went to Jesus' quotations of this psalm. And then by the time you get to the third step, you're articulating or formulating a belief statement, and that's the meaning phase, right? But then you move on and you get to what does the world say? You know, what are the truth claims of the world? And then what do I say? What does this mean to me is the way people usually say that. It's better to say, how do I apply this? So these are the application phase like we've talked about. But you've got to exegete the world in addition to exegeting the Scripture. So when the world says one thing, then we can, can compare that to what the Bible says and say, oh, is it correct? Is it legitimate? Is it valid or not? And then, you know, what do I say to the Word of God? Are there things that I need to change? Are there things that I need to correct? So on and so forth. And all of this is the process of building a biblical worldview. So, uh, do you see how foundational this study that we're doing here is? You know, it's like in a, in a building, if you've got a bad foundation, you're going to have cracked walls, cracked ceilings, and eventually it's going to tumble down. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, remember? He said, the wise man built his house on the things I'm saying that I just told you in this Sermon on the Mount. The foolish man doesn't. So the Word of God is, is a critical foundation, but only if it is correctly handled. And we do that through the literal, grammatical, historical context. And so it, when people today claim to be a Christian, but don't hold... Christian views, and, and David Fiorazzo talked a lot about this Sunday while he was with us. You know, what do you do with people who claim to be Christians, but they're, you know, pro-homosexuality, pro-abortion, pro-transgender, pro-all this stuff, you know, and, and that's so clearly in violation to Scripture. Well, well, they're not, they're not building their worldview based on this method. They're certainly not starting with the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context. And, uh, and so their, their worldview is made up of a hodgepodge of different inputs and sources and so forth, and the result is a worldview that's pretty unreliable and pretty inaccurate. But to whatever extent we can build our worldview on the principles of God's Word, having correctly handled the Word of God, we will have a a good biblical worldview. Does that make sense? Yeah.
Well, so that so the comment is, how could the Old Testament reader have understood what the cornerstone that was rejected was? Well, that uh, terminology is used by uh, Isaiah the prophet and, and other Old Testament prophets that clearly is messianic. So they should have known it was messianic, even in their historical context. Now what the New Testament comes along and does is gives us more information about in what way. Like they didn't necessarily know that he was going to be crucified between two thieves on a hill outside Jerusalem, right? But they knew or should have known from God's revelation in the Old Testament that he would die. I mean, Daniel talks about him being cut off. Isaiah talks about him being the suffering servant. This is an allusion to that. So, so it's, I, it would not be correct to say that they couldn't understand what it means, but it would be correct to say that now having the, the fulfillment of some of these things, they have a fuller picture of how. So that's a good point. Anybody else? So, I don't know, this to me just seemed to click uh, this morning when I was writing this down. I just feel like it's just one other way to, to, to really say the same thing about the five steps, just kind of coming at it from a different, uh, different angle. All right, so now as we talk about application, I want to spend a moment on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We've talked about this before. And I think we've even talked about the, the four things that I'm going to mention here before. Maybe not in this series, but probably in, in, a, in a Sunday sermon or some other uh, place. But it always bears repeating. But the, uh, Paul writes here in 2 Timothy 3 in his last letter, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We talked about that. God breathed. But notice he says it's profitable. Now, that word profitable is a Greek word that means to heap up or accumulate, profit. And so, in what way is it profitable? What are you accumulating through the Word of God, through Scripture? And remember, Scripture there is graphe, meaning the written Word of God. Well, he tells us in what way it's profitable, and the first of those is doctrine. So four things, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And through those four things that we accumulate, we are then complete, meaning mature, and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's take a closer look at those four things. The first one is doctrine, and doctrine is what we should believe. So at step three of the five steps in the Bible study process, we are formulating a doctrinal statement. We are summarizing uh, what we believe, creating a belief statement, remember? So that's what we call doctrine. Remember, I, I think way back at the beginning of this series, I asked you if you understood the distinction between doctrine and theology, and I pointed out that doctrine is a conclusion Theology is a process, or doctrine, I said, is a product. Theology is a process. So by doing theology, comparing Scripture with Scripture, correctly handling the Word of God, and so forth, we are able to arrive at our doctrine. And so that's the first thing that, that the study of God's Word is, is valuable for. It tells us what to believe. But then he says it's also profitable for reproof. Well, reproof is what you should not believe. You should not believe. So, so far, you can already see the great value in, in, in the Word of God and, and especially handling it correctly because it tells you what you should believe and what you shouldn't believe. And that everything really can fall into one of those categories, right? What's true and what's not true. But he goes on, it's also profitable for correction. And correction has to do with behavior, meaning it tells us what not to do. What not to do. So there's kind of a mini chiasm here. If you, if you remember your English literature, a chiasm, it's basically A, B, B, A would be the outline. So it's 
what to do, and then in the middle, what not, what not, and then at the end, what to. But correction here is telling you what not to do. Watch out for these behaviors, right? And the Word of God gives us plenty of data about certain behaviors that we should not do, right? And, and then the, lastly, it says it's also profitable for instruction or training in righteousness. Now remember, righteousness is used in two different senses in God's Word. It's used in the positional sense of justification, which we obtain that position by faith. When we by faith believe the gospel, in that moment we are declared righteous. We are positionally in Christ. Uh, it's the doctrine of imputation. Christ's righteousness, which we could never attain on our own, is given to us. So it's, it's charged to our account. That's positional righteousness. But of course the Bible frequently speaks of righteousness in a practical sense, our behavior. Righteousness in the sense of doing right things. And that's what it's talking about here. Uh, we don't need instruction about positional righteousness. That's a free gift we get by faith. But we certainly do need instruction about practical righteousness. And so that leads us to the fourth thing, and that is what to do. So the Bible tells us what to believe and what not to believe, what, to, what not to do and what to do. And there's that, that chiasm that I kind of talked about. So when you really boil it all down, what more do we need in life? If we want to successfully navigate life, as long as I know what I should believe and what I should not believe, how I should behave and how I shouldn't behave, that's pretty much it. And where do we get that? From the Bible. So when we hear about people who uh, are Christians who are not, uh, they have erroneous beliefs, they reject truth claims that the Bible clearly teaches, such as young earth creationism, a literal global flood, the deity of Christ. So they're not believing what's, what they should, and they are believing what they shouldn't. Well, they're not rooted in the Word of God. And similarly, when we see Christians who are behaving like unbelievers, living in carnality, they're not rooted in the Word of God. And so uh, it should not surprise us then, uh, and of course the Bible predicts this in, in uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 in many places, but that things are going to get worse and worse. But it really shouldn't surprise us when we see the dearth of biblical knowledge among Christians that the product of that is, you know, carnality and false beliefs and all kinds of issues. Uh, in the same way that the Scripture is profitable, it's not profitable to not study the Scripture. And that's why this is such an important uh, topic. And that's why Paul concludes here that the man of God or woman of God, here is the idea, may be complete or perfect, or literally it's uh, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The uh, reason people aren't producing very many good works is they're, they're not equipped to do so. Yeah. So the question is about the apostate church, which we've talked a lot about. We talked about it on Sunday in the two sessions with David Fiorazzo. And the question is, is it as simple as saying that the apostate church basically came about because they neglected the Word of God and these four benefits or profitable aspects of it? Or is there some other thing at play? No, I think it all comes back ultimately to the Word of God. And uh, if you go back and look at the sort of the beginning of the end for the evangelical church in America. It would be the turn of the 20th century with the rise of liberalism and higher criticism in the, in the seminaries and Bible colleges. And what did they do? They began to denigrate the Scripture, bring it down a few layers below science and reason and rationality and all these things. And so for hundreds of years, the, the educated... Uh, the learned w understood the Bible as the Word of God and they took it for what it said and, and didn't even question it. But 
as we got too smart for our own good, then they began to say, well, of course, anybody with half a brain knows that the earth is older than 6,000 years. Why? Because that eugenicist Darwin that wanted to kill anybody with a broken leg said so, right? And he must be right. And they just hammered and hammered and hammered and hammered at that. And then they, of course, uh, in America anyway, launched compulsory government schooling in 1918 where they required these kids to be mind-controlled with the evolutionary thinking. And it just denigrated the Word of God. That's why you heard David say, and I reiterated it, that the first 11 chapters of the Bible are so critical. Because if you don't believe that, forget it. You've, un you've ripped the foundation right out of it. And that's what Darwinism does. And so, but, you know, liberalism crept in and they started saying, well, it, you know, you can't have the, a global flood, you can't have the Red Sea parting, you can't have, you know, Jonah in the belly of a great fit, and all these things. And then at first, it was very subtle, and then it got a little more blatant. But even when it was pretty blatant and they were denying the miracles of Scripture, they still said, but we believe in the gospel, and we believe in the resurrection, and we believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ. But it didn't take long, another generation, and they rejected that too. And that's why, as we talked about, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, that school here, ILIF, right? I think that you had put, uh, pointed out. Um, we see these schools that have completely departed from the, the, the Bible. And there's some parallels, by the way, between, you know, Bible teaching seminaries, so-called, and law schools. Now, I've never vetted this, but I've heard from some reliable sources that these days most law schools teach one short credit hour course in, const in the Constitution, and the rest is all case law type stuff. Well, I mean, the Constitution is the Bible of the legal system. It is the infallible standard, right? It sets the foundation. And in the same way, the Bible is now, you know, you go to some of these seminaries, you can get, you know, 120, you know, or our master's degree, actually most master's degrees at those kind of seminaries are 60 hours, but you can get an advanced degree without even taking any Bible. It's all philosophy and counseling and conflict management and leadership and management and all these. And they, the Bible is like, you don't even, wouldn't even know it's a Bible school. So I, I think ultimately to answer your question, it all comes down to the Bible, but there are, it, it's a, it's a, you know, it, 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 may, it gets worse on its own. You know, each time further step they get away from the Bible, then it just makes it even worse. So, so today, as we talked about uh, Sunday, you know, there are but somewhere between 5 and 25%, depending on who you believe. If you believe David, it's 25%. If you believe me, it's 5 and I tend to agree with me more than David. Um, but anyway, 5% uh, of churches today really still begin their sermons with, turn with me in your Bibles, you know, using that as a metaphor. Yeah. When the Jewish rabbis taught, did they teach the whole Old Testament or just the first f five books? So we, we, we know historically the answer to that, but there's also an interesting story in the Bible that tells us the answer to that. If you remember, when Jesus began his Galilean ministry in Luke 4, he went into the synagogue where the rabbi was teaching, and he, was, he had unrolled the scroll, and the rabbi was teaching from where? Anybody remember? Isaiah, right? So certainly they taught the law and the prophets. The law, the Torah, meaning the first five books of Moses, and the prophets, meaning everything else. So yeah, they taught it all. They, they didn't, you know, I don't know enough about it to know what their system was, if they like taught through the Bible in a year, the Old Testament in a year, or what, how they arrived at their text, but I'm sure there was a system, yeah. The, the first five books of the Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I think there were context, and the question is if they were teaching small groups of men, would it be 
just the Torah. Yeah, I think there are plenty of contexts in which they were focusing on the Torah. But the phrase that Jesus uses, uh, you know, again and again, is the law and the prophets. You see that in the New Testament, meaning the sum total of the Old Testament. So, good questions. All right, so as we kind of move on with the value of the Bible here, and tonight's theme that we're about to get to for the remainder of our time is the, um, just I forget the term I use, but the incredible nature of God's Word, just the uh, astounding nature of God's Word. But let's not forget, it's all about how it affects us. And so the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He said, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. He said, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. So last week, we kind of started with the big picture of truth in God's mind, ultimately becoming uh, our modern English Bible so that truth can be in the reader's mind. And we talked about how this happened over a complex process using revelation, inspiration, canonicity, preservation, the translation process, and the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination our own interpretation through logical means, and then, of course, application. So this is kind of the roadmap that we're going to be following as we move through the rest of this series. Um, and I want to start tonight kind of giving some more information about this idea of revelation. So God, the eternal creator of the universe, chose to unveil himself in time, space, and matter to His creation. He did that through general revelation, which is nature, providence, conscience, but He also did it through special revelation, which is through the human authors, 40 of them, who under the inspiration of the Spirit were carried along to record what God intended for us to know about Him. So when we say the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me, there's a lot packed into that statement. And we don't, you know, we have, we're so blessed today in the modern age to be able to just pick up a Bible anywhere and read it. And I think we need to be reminded of just how precious this book is that we hold in our hands, right? It is unlike any other uh, book on the planet. So the English word Bible comes from the Greek word biblion, which means book or roll. Uh, or the inner part of the papyrus plant um, is what they actually wrote on in the first century anyway, and it grew along the marshes of the uh, Nile River. Uh, papyrus, as you may know, is the uh, etymology of the English word paper, and uh, that's where we get the word paper from. And so ancient writings were often on rolls of papyrus. So the English word scripture, which you've heard me say several times, is the Greek word graphe, meaning writings, uh, and it's where we get the English word graffiti. In the New Testament, graphe is used over 140 times to denote the Bible, the Holy Scriptures. 140 times, right? So if we talk about truth in God's mind, uh, we need to recognize right from the start the divine origin of the Bible. That's what sets it apart from any other book. Uh, there are plenty of good books out there, plenty of books with accurate information in them, but none of them can claim to have a divine origin. The Bible yet claims within its own pages to be a unique set-apart book. Some 3,800 times the Bible declares, God said, or you know, the old King James, thus saith the Lord. Right, um, And the human authors defended the divine origin uh, that should should just say of the Bible at great personal cost. I mean, if this was just some other book, why were so many early Christians, starting with the apostles, willing to give their lives for it? Right. Um, let me give you some examples. First uh, Corinthians fourteen. Paul recognized that his writings were the very commands of God. Listen to what he said. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 
Paul understood that. Paul's readers also recognized, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, 2, that his writings were authoritative. He said, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now there's a lot in this one little verse here. First of all, that, that word received, see where he says, we, because when you received the word of God, there are two words in Greek for receive. One of them is uh, the word lambano, and the other is dekamai. And the difference is lambano means to take possession of something. So if you are given a gift, for example, and you take, you've received it. It says nothing about the attitude. It says nothing about anything other than the fact that you, you now have ownership of it. You now have possession of it, right? You've received it, right? Um, it's, it's used, for example, in, in places like uh, when a person received blows. Like I think in the Passion narratives, it talks about Jesus receiving blows, lambano, right? They, they, he got them. <laughs> they were his. Um, but then that second word on the third line there, when you received the word of God, which you're, you welcomed it, often in the English New Testament, that word is also translated received. And you don't know without doing a simple word study that it's a different word for received. Now here, it's very helpful in the New King James because they rightly translate it with a different word. Because dekamai, which is the word here, has more to do with your attitude in receiving. It's to welcome and embrace and so forth, right? Uh, so you certainly wouldn't welcome and embrace receiving blows, <laughs> right? Um, but so the first one has to do with our justification. For example, it's the word that's used in John 1.12. To as many as received him, lambano, took possession of him, which John tells us at the end of that verse means believed in him. So to receive him is to believe in him. To them he gave the right to become the children of God. So the moment you believe in Christ, you've received him by faith. You're now a child of God. You're born again. Um, but welcome and embrace is totally different. That has more to do with how you respond and, are, you know, when you are as a Christian having received the word of God, lambano, and become born again, when you live in sin, you're not welcoming and embracing what the Word of God says. In fact, you're rejecting it. You're turning a deaf ear to it. You're uh, disobeying it, right? So here, Paul talks about the Thessalonians in both senses. He said, man, we, we thank God without ceasing when we think of you because you not only received the Word of God, which you heard from us. Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Paul preached the gospel to them. They received it by faith. And he said, but you, you went beyond that. You then also welcomed our teaching, not as if it was just good advice from men, but it was the Word of God which effectively then worked in you who believe. So as I've said, I say, and I'm belaboring this verse here a little bit, only because I want to point out that going back to the five steps in the Bible study process, it is very possible to be biblically brilliant and morally bankrupt. You can know the Word of God and not always welcome and embrace the Word of God. And this right here is a perfect illustration of the biblical principle that Christians, true Christians, who cater to the flesh, who walk in the flesh and, and walk after the flesh and not after the Spirit, can produce the fruit of the flesh. And they can look pretty bad. They can, they can look like unbelievers, in fact. Uh, and just because they know the Word doesn't mean they're going to apply the Word of God in their lives. Remember, the goal of Bible study is a changed life. So let's always make sure when you come to Plum Creek Chapel that you're not coming just to gain more knowledge. There's plenty of knowledge to be had here. Uh, not just when I'm teaching, but we've got a lot of great teachers. Uh, and we have a lot of guest speakers who expound the Word. And I hope every time you come, you learn something. But the goal isn't knowledge, which puffeth up. The goal is to translate that information into transformation. And uh, I was talking to a, a guy that I'm discipling 
uh, out of Wisconsin, actually. Uh, boy, they need a lot of discipling in Wisconsin, let me tell you. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, uh, we were talking about preaching and how I believe the best methodology for preaching is exhortational, not informational. Right? Now, you've got to have information true to the text, built on the Word of God and rightly dividing the Word of God. But it doesn't stop there because you can get information at a Bible college or a seminary. You can get information by just enrolling in some, uh, you know, correspondence courses or some online, you know, uh, distance education courses. What preaching is supposed to be in the local church is supposed to be exhorting people, having explained the meaning with the now what? How do I take this information and change my life with it? And since I mentioned that, I'll go ahead and add this, that uh, my practice uh, in terms of style for many, many years has been to end messages with a, a challenge. I've changed what I've called it at different times through the years, but it's either a challenge or a takeaway, I call it, uh, or a lesson to leave with, you know, something that, that answers that uh, implied question of so what? What do I do with this information? But I, I want to point out, I don't know that I've said this explicitly, and so it's helpful to just make sure you understand my intentions there. I believe ultimately it's the Holy Spirit's job with each individual believer to help you welcome and embrace, apply, which is what that is, the Word of God. Um, and that's the reason that many times when I've shared a message, you know, in my mind, I, I have the main takeaways that I think, you know, hey, this is what I really took away from this passage. But inevitably, I've had people come up to me or email me or whatever and say, boy, thanks for this message. You know, boy, the Lord really used it in such and such a way. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's great. That's not really what I was going for, but hey, that's great. And that's because the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Spirit of God can use it to mold and shape people however He wants. That's between the individual believer and the Word of God. So what I'm saying is I don't give you takeaways at the end of a message because I'm trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. I do that because I want to make sure that I don't stop short of that five full steps and just give you the information. I want to at least nudge you in the direction of thinking about what does this mean, you know. And, uh, you know, those a lot of times they're kind of perfunctory and you're thinking, well, yeah, okay. It may not resonate with you. That's between you and the Lord. Uh, but they resonate with me because I'm the one coming up with them. And so I always go back at the end and I think, okay, you know, if I could narrow down kind of this 30 to 40 minute sermon to uh, two or three takeaways, what would it be? And that's what I try to meditate on, you know, uh, as in the week to, to follow. So, um, does that make sense? So, it's all about transformation, not information. Now, back to where we are in our, in our flow of thought here. We're talking about the divine origin of the Bible. And here's an example where Paul's readers recognized that what Paul, as a writer of Scripture, was speaking was authoritative. Uh, Peter, same thing. Peter talks about the power and the authority of the Bible. He says, We did not follow uh, cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we meaning he and the other apostles, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, God said that about Jesus, obviously. And He said it when? Anybody know? Wait a minute. Well, which was it? The baptism or the transfiguration? Hear Him. Yep, yep. So you're correct. You're both right. You both. Get, he's trying to get, give you some skin there. All right. Um, so he was leaving you hanging. I can't let him leave you hanging. Um, you're both correct. Yeah, it, twice God said this about Jesus. By the way, this is, there are only two times in the entire New Testament 
that we, in the record of the where God, the Creator, speaks audibly from heaven to earth, and both times He says the same thing. So that ought to tell you something. Um, it's the preeminence of Christ and the, the centrality of Christ in the present church age. That's why we're called Christians and not Yahwehites, right? Um, but uh, anyway, so Peter here is quoting that. Now, Peter was present for the second one of those, at least. We, the, the record, we don't know if he was present at Christ's baptism, but we can assume not because Christ didn't call him till after, call his disciples till after he was baptized. But Peter was here. So who can tell me the, uh, the setting or the context of the transfiguration? First of all, what is the transfiguration? What's, I mean, that's a fancy word. I want to make sure we know what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, when Jesus was, you said, transformed into his glorified body, basically the glory of the Lord came upon him and he shone, right? And that's what we mean by transfigured. And, but the context here was Matthew, uh, at the end of Matthew 16, Jesus goes up on a mountain and Matthew tells us he took with him which three disciples? Peter, okay, John and James. I'm used to saying Peter, James, and John. It's one of those things, it's kind of like Peter, Paul, and Mary. It just rolls off the lips, right? <laughs> But Peter, James, and John are Peter, John, and... Right, the inner three, right? So um, it's interesting that the Bible tells... Matthew tells us Jesus took them with him. This was for them. This wasn't for him. He had a point that he was going to make with his inner three disciples. And then, as Jeffrey talked about, he was up there on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, I believe they literally appeared. God gave them gave a vision for these disciples to see. That's what the text says. And then Peter uh, gets all excited, remember, and he thinks the kingdom must be here. Because Jesus had just said at the end of chapter 16, I tell you the truth, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in all of His glory. That's a paraphrase. Let me make sure that He said coming in all of His glory. Uh, uh, he said, um, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not take test till they see the sum of men coming in his kingdom. I knew that I was pretty sure I didn't have that right. Coming in his kingdom. So then Jesus takes them up there, and the sum of you that he was talking about was Peter, James, and John, and he wanted them to see a glimpse of the kingdom. And so uh, when Peter is writing this here, he's He's saying, look, you can't get any closer to God than when God is there, Christ is glorified before all, and, and we see a picture, a microcosm of the kingdom. Because if you think about it, the people that were present on the mountain that day were the disciples, right, who represented believers in the church age that were alive, Moses, who represented Old Testament saints, Elijah, who represented believers who never died, potentially raptured believers, right? Uh, and, of course, the king, Christ. So that all the elements are there in that picture of the kingdom, which is why Jesus said that. And then, uh, so Peter, just to finish the context, says, Oh, this is great. The kingdom is here. Let's just build some tents and start the kingdom right now. I'm ready. You know, Peter was always very... Uh, eager and just impulsive. And, of course, that's when God interrupted Peter, right? In fact, it's often been pointed out that, you know, one of the two times God spoke directly from heaven to earth, He interrupted the first church leader, Peter, the pastor of the first church in the Christian age. Um, humbling thing to remember. But anyway, if you remember, they all fall on their feet, um, I mean on their face, uh, when they woke up, Jesus gently touches them. They wake up. Peter, Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Christ is there transfigured before them. And the point being, 
Christ is what matters. Not the Old Testament law and the prophets, but Christ. Not that he was saying the Old Testament is irrelevant because Jesus elsewhere makes it very clear that I uh, didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, and not one jot or tittle will by any means disappear till all is fulfilled. So it's just fascinating to me when Peter makes this statement about the power and the authority of God's Word, which it goes on to, we're just kind of got stalled here at this last phrase, that he was there, you know. He's, he's speaking with authority because he saw God speak this. He saw Christ transfigured. Uh, and then he goes on, And we heard this voice which came from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain, when we were with him on the holy mountain, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Um, elsewhere, or going on, Peter continues then to say, the verse we've looked at a few weeks ago, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, there's that word graphe, is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. This wasn't just some author uh, who set out to write a book. This is the, the, the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me just do a couple more verses here and then we'll be done for tonight. Talking about the divine origin of the Bible. John the Apostle, one of the other ones that was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, by the way, said, we are of God. He had an understanding of the divine authority with which he wrote as an apostle. And he said to reject his teaching was to reject God. And then back to Paul, he said, These things we also speak, we the apostles, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. So again, he's confirming here that God's revelation came to us through words. Not in, word, not in man's words, but in words which the Holy Spirit taught, just as Peter said when they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Old Testament prophets repeatedly claimed that their message was directly from God. Here's an example from Isaiah. For thus says the Lord, right? So they're speaking for God. Another one, thus says the Lord, right? I am the Lord your God, right? So the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament authors and apostles all affirm the incredible divine origin of, uh, of God's Word. So uh, we, we left, we mentioned, we jumped ahead last week to talk about the incredible continuity of the Bible. But as a religious book, it stands in a class by itself. Some 40 different authors from diverse vocations written over a period of 1,500 years on three different uh, continents and three different languages. And uh, we compared that last week to the Koran. And it just, it's embarrassing, frankly. The Koran was compiled by one individual. That was all destroyed and then uh, in one location, by the way. And then they uh, redid it in 650 A.D., and all the original copies were destroyed at that time. And, uh, and we, the oldest fragment we have is from nearly 100 years after the second compilation and a full 100 years after the original compilation, whereas we have several thousand manuscripts, including this fragment of John that we looked at from John chapter uh, one, or chapter 18. So the only way to explain the incredible continuity of the Bible is with its divine origin. The Holy Spirit is the common bond. It's absolutely impossible for any human being to have orchestrated the harmony of the teachings of God's Word. Divine authorship is the only answer. So we'll, uh, next week, I want to, or next time, I want to talk about um, you know, the preservation. Let's go back to our uh, chart and kind of how we, you know, how we get, to, you know, through to the books that we have in our, in our collection of manuscripts and so forth. So any questions before we close out? So uh, a reminder, and this will be in all of the email uh, reminders. So if you're not signed up for the Not By Works or Plum Creek Chapel, the best thing is subscribe to both, by the way. We send out reminders every week and prayer alerts and other announcements and things. 
we will not meet for midweek service for the next three weeks. Next week is Thanksgiving, so we want you to enjoy that week and that time with your family. Wednesday nights, people are coming in to town. I know we've got uh, kids coming home. Uh, so no meeting next week. And then the next two Wednesdays, I'll be on the road speaking at a, at a conference in Dallas and a church in Houston. So those will all be uploaded as podcasts, possibly videos. Uh, the church in Houston, I won't be able to video because I'm not going to be uh, using technology, which is always a challenge for me. I'm so married to visuals. I, I can't, I feel like I'm at a loss when I don't have visual aids, but it's good to challenge me every now, now and then to do that. So, uh, but the conference in Dallas uh, will be, uh, the video will be uploaded. So, but we will not meet again here. Uh, and for those of you live streaming or watching the video, we won't have part eight in our series of how to read and understand the Bible until December 15th. So the next three weeks are off. Doesn't mean there's not going to be plenty of, you know, material out there for fresh material for you to digest if you want to. We just won't be doing this series for the next three weeks. Make sense? All right. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys. You guys are dismissed and we'll have a great uh, rest of the week.